it's predictable where some of you sit every week. It's <laughs> if I want to see if somebody's here, I can just look at the spot that you're supposed to be in. <laughs> so our, I, my, I sense that some of our numbers are slipping here, which I thought they might as we approach this fourth foundation. Not slipping a lot, but slipping some. Uh, I remember a few years ago I gave uh, a whole year's talk on uh, the ox herding pictures, which is essentially uh, the, la the fourth foundation of mindfulness. And the numbers slipped. As the ox faded out of the picture, the numbers <laughs> definitely decreased. And we'd have to ask ourselves, what's going on? Uh, why, why is that occurring? I mean, I ask myself that. You're still coming, the ones that are here. So, But uh, because I think it's, uh, it, it, we, we like our spirituality, uh, you know, manageable. We like it in form. We like it as something that we can see rock hard, solid. And as long as we're talking about the body, we get our hands around it. And even when we were becoming uh, more subtle into the feeling still, you know, I can feel a feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, got it, okay, right, we're, we're, we feel accomplished. It's all manageable. And then uh, things got a little funny when we went into the third foundation, but still, states of mind, you know, I, I, okay, happy, sad, miserable, you know, I got that. <laughs> <laughs> still, it was still manageable. But where are we now? You see? What's manageable about the formless? Where are you going to sit? What are you going to grab? How are you going to verify or valid validate yourself? And so, perhaps in that vagueness or perhaps by the fear of what that might acknowledge about our true existence, uh, we wiggle, and wiggling means in terms of a assembly that people don't come as easily to that, because it's not as easily seen, although it is the seeing. How far away could it be? How far away is your sight? How far away is the seeing of this moment? Well, that's such an interesting question, you see. We put it so remote, we make it so remote, so distant, so impossible, and it's so close. We carry it with us. It can't possibly escape. But we're so used to looking at the particulars within the moment that we meet what it is that sees what is it that holds everything? It's like knowing the earth only from the sense of the continents and forgetting the oceans. Although the oceans surround the con continents and are 75% of the mass or, or the square acreage of the earth. And so uh, as we get more remote, even though the remoteness is what defines the sacred. It's not the, the form that defines the sacred. I mean, if that were the sacred, then we would have a field day every day within the sacred. But it, we don't, because the sacred just reflects back what we know, and what we know inhibits or obscures the sacred. And so form just represents our life. So what is it that gives us the sacred? Why are we here, you see? What are we doing here? Another way of, so what's, what makes our life meaningful? It's a fair question, isn't it? What makes our life meaningful? Aliveness is what makes it meaningful. What's the definition of that? What we do within our life is the form our life takes. 
but what is aliveness itself? What is at the heart of our very existence? And that is uncontrollable, you see? It can't be manipulated. And because it's beyond our efforts to procure it, to assure it, we would rather move to something that is more manageable, like our efforts to concentrate. or our difficulty with the pains of our knee. He said, it's very manageable. Even though it's a problem, it's workable. And I can give you all the forms and cultivations and qualities that help you work with it. And I'll work with those qualities and try to cultivate those qualities so that I'll have the resources available to manage the difficulty that's in front of me. And that's what 99.9% .9 of spirituality is in this country. And I'm not talking about religion. religion. That's way off. In the Hindu tradition, it's talked about in terms of the hoofs of the cow. And all four hoofs of the cow are on the earth. It's a very sacred time. And it's said that this particular time, or phase, or era, there's only one hoof of the cow that touches the earth. And yet the earth desperately needs all four hoofs. Desperately. And so the formless, to welcome it, even if it seems remote, though it is not. Let us not assume that it's remote. Let us not assume that there's a distance between ourselves and it at all. Let's not place anything between us and that possibility, that touched sense or felt sense of presence. And then we know the fourth foundation. We know the fourth foundation. Now what I'm interested in, and we've talked about the discerning factor of mind. We've spent a lot of time talking about the difference between active and passive discernment. And that this quality of presence has intrinsic to it the ability to an intelligence, an embodied intelligence, embodied is the wrong word, an intrinsic intelligence. And the mind's chatter with the intellectual reference of what it's seen often has a commentary that's associated with that intelligence. And we give credence to the commentary, the intellectual overlay on the intelligence. But it's the sense of the intuitive. You see, the intuitive. That's the embodiment of the embodiment against the wrong word. That's the, that is the manifestation of, of awareness. It's okay if the mind comes in and comments upon what it sees and provides a strategy to what it sees and all of that, as long as you don't take that as the discerning quality itself, as long as you give reference to where it properly exists. And in these suttas, in the, in the sutta, I mean, the, they talk about the effects of states of mind on awareness, as if the, if the states of mind were the fourth quality, fourth foundation. The f those are just what is being discerned. The discernment is the fourth foundation. 
doesn't matter if it's the seven factors or the four, five hindrances or the three characteristics. Or, those are just reference ways to say the discernment and intelligence is, is ongoing, is looking, is seeing, is the total. It's not the lists, it's the discerning that is the foundation. Because the discerning takes you out of yourself. The lists give you a governance within yourself. Now, if you have a list, you have something to do. I'm missing number four. <laughs> right? it, it, it gives you a sense of embodied struggle to have a list. Somewhere it's been lost. I feel. I mean, you can throw me out the window and take back other, I don't know. This is a, but it, uh, no, I'm, I'm fairly certain that this is, <laughs> actually I am fairly certain this is. <laughs> so you see, we're, what we're going to do for the rest of the time, we have, uh, this is, uh, three more talks after this, or th three of the four talks with this, this talk included, I'm going to bring an application of discernment. What does it mean to discern the sutta, to discern uh, the literature, the scriptures, or whatever it is that we're reading, or life itself? Uh, because our tendency is to feel uh, disempowered in our ability to discern. We don't feel adequate. We don't feel like we have that ability when everyone does, but we don't feel, we feel like we're the one that was left out of it. And so to call back the full empowerment of discernment, as we have mentioned in previous talks, we have to be independent of other authorities, including our own inward authority of past experience the authority of, our of a past experience that has an authority over us. When I've seen something in the past, it has a way of keeping me contained within the knowledge of what I know that thing to be. That's an authority, Krishnamurti used to say. But discernment not only sees, it sees the authority. It feels the authority. So we can't limit the the discernment it has to be complete because our doubt will keep us within the authority rather than seeing the authority wherever it is that we hesitate wherever it is that we're neuro neuro neurotically needy we will miss what the compensation is for that neediness you see am I speaking Greek And so what we do, and I, again, see this missing in much of the literature and much of the writing, is that we use an implied dharma. We bring our discernment to bear as the, as the truth. And then where the literature or the texts fall out of that intuitive sense of ourselves knowing, we let the literature go. We follow the intuitive, the sense of guide. That's our guide. Instead of holding ourselves to the word when it doesn't feel right, we hold ourselves to the sense of it being right and release ourselves from the word. And so I just want to, I want to read uh, a paragraph of the fourth foundation with the idea of the application of discernment. How do we apply this discernment? <clears throat> there is a case where a monk discerns the arising of mental qualities in and of themselves with reference to the five hindrances. And how does a monk discern the arising of these mental qualities in and of themselves with reference to the five hindrances? 
There is the case where there being sensual desire present within a monk, he discerns there is sensual desire present within me. Or there being no sensual desire present within, he discerns that there is no sensual desire present within. He discerns how there is the arising of unarisen sensual desire, and he, whatever that means, and he discerns how there is the abandoning of sensual desire once it has arisen. And he discerns how there is no future arising of sensual desire that has been abandoned. The same formula is repeated for the aggregates, the seven factors, the six sense doors, the four noble truths, etc. So, what, what is, you know, like, mom? What is that? What's, what's, what's being said there? What's be, we should know what's being said there. And we should bring our own ability to discern what's being said there into what's being said. And the first thing we have to realize is that the emphasis on this is the discerning, not the lists, as I have mentioned. It doesn't matter what we're discerning. Really, it doesn't. Being open to whatever life brings forth is the quality of open discernment, of open awareness. And one of the things that grabs me and should grab you as you read through these uh, is that uh, this, the monk, uh, there is sensual desire present within me. Well, I, within me all just catches my, like, wait a second here. Where's the anatta? The emptiness in that phrase. What is, what's going on there where he referenced himself as the discerning person? Already it seems like we're missing the boat here because discernment is the formless. It's not contained within the form. We claim reference to the form having the discernment, but really it's a free-floating uh, aspect, um, embodiment of life, really. So you begin to, you just bring forth some of the wisdom that we have accrued from our own practice within these four foundations so that when we read the literature that governs the four foundations, we have a sense of whether it feels right or not. Not the arcane speech. That doesn't feel right to anyone, I don't think. It certainly doesn't feel right to me. But the, the, some of the word usage, and you know that something's out of sorts there. Some, somebody who wrote it down was limited in their understanding, basically. So the question is, you see, you know, just within this ability to discern, gives us ability to sense our own intuitive rightness. And so we, this particular passage is talking about the five hindrances. But the question I would ask is, you know, why do we call them hindrances? Hindrance to what? That's where the discernment needs to go. It needs to go to the very basic assumptions on which this thing is... We're going to call these the five hindrances. Now in Pali, they're actually called coverings. The Pali word for hindrance is actually coverings or obscuration. So, so, but why is it... What's obscuring? If I'm willing to discern, if I'm willing to see, if I'm willing to look, Nothing is being denied access. There is no covering. There is no hindrance here. So the term hindrance, as it's been translated in this age, feels misplaced somehow. There's, I'm not a hindrance. This isn't a hindrance. Is sense desire a hindrance? Why is it a hindrance? A hindrance to whom? I'm willing to feel sense desire. I'm willing to see into sense desire. I'm willing to see into sense desire, discernment can approach it and cover it and have complete understanding of it. If I turn from it, then I have made something that was never a, a hindrance into a hindrance because it's from my fear of it being something that will control me. My sense desires will control me. And then you have what's left over is a whole 
attempt to try to get back into the right alignment to our sense desires so they'll no longer control us. But behind that is a fear that they will still control us and a timidity to the sense desire. That's nonsense. Let's just see what a sense desire is. And if I get caught up in it, I get caught up in it. So I go underwater for, for a while. So what? A cork always comes back to the surface. <laughs> okay, so here we go. Let me look at these sense desires straight on. You see? And now there's this freedom of exploration, this sense of spirit being unbound, no longer controlled by the fears of the limitation of me. What I'm afraid this sense desire will do to me. What I'm afraid these rest of these hindrances, how they will control me. And the literature is steeped with warnings about the hindrances. And so we, we gulp when one of them comes in our practice, which most frequently they do. See, we have to be careful that we don't make the dharma, dharma a, a, a formula, a, a good and bad grouping. Okay, the good qualities are over here, the bad qualities are over there. I'll stay away from those. And if I can just bring more and more of my a time abiding within the good qualities, then somehow the Dharma will carry me into an experience that will be what? That will be what? That will be divisive because I've, I've already turned away from half my life. You think that liberation, which liberation to all things, is going to come from turning away from anything? It doesn't make sense, even to the... beginning student. But what I'm asking from you is a courage. Because we are so scarred from our failures, from our mistakes, from our discouragement, we're afraid of making mistakes in spiritual practice. We're afraid of the timidity factor. We're afraid of, we, should, we have to get this right because the rest of our life doesn't feel like it's going right at all. And I really want this to get, to get this right. And it gives us a kind of a pause or a fear relationship to it. And what we need to do is to come out of that. Discernment is a radical movement out of that. Taking everything on and admitting where you don't understand something and not letting that lack of understanding keep you from the full embodiment of, of it. So what does it mean? What is a skillful state or an unskillful state? What does that mean? Skillful. Skillful to what? To whom? Beneficial to how is it beneficial? This is an unskillful state. What does that mean? I'm going to feel it, decide for myself. Now the words are no longer from the Buddha. The words are now from us because we have translated the experience into us. And now the richness, the richness of that realization comes out. And we are no longer leading with a kind of fear of making a mistake in our practice. There is no possibility of you ever making a mistake in your practice as long as you're willing to see what you're doing. No possibility. So let us become unbound in this. There's so much to learn. You know, I was uh, talking to the beginning class last night, and you, they're just starting. You know, they're just like toddlers that are just, and you just, you, wanna, you want to infuse the courage to keep walking. That's really what you want to encourage them, so that their legs will grow in strength, and that they'll, and you know how much there is that they have to be willing to see. 
And many of us have lost that willingness that we're, we're comfortable with the knowing and the philosophy and even insights into the different aspects of the Dharma, but we haven't crossed a critical threshold in which we are actually engaging those insights into our living experience. And this is a terrible fault that we have. And I've seen it again and again and again at crucial times in many students, very experienced students' lives, where there will be a travesty, a trauma, an illness, a loss of something or someone. And they, they will remain caged within their own paradigm. They won't bring the Dharma out. They won't. This is a matter of not just you know, knowing the fact of surrender, but surrendering. Of not just of knowing what is right and how the facts and the noble truths of suffering, but ending the suffering. Acting upon that. And every one of us has that capability. It's just that we stay within our timidity of the fear. And when, as soon as we do that, as soon as we give over the courage to the timidity, then we are bound within the paradigm of safety, within the caution of our fear of making a mistake. And you think you're growing, you sit, you know, you go on retreats, you have deeper understandings of the Dharma as you read them and hear it. But there's a way that there's inertia, that there's just a lack of real movement. And I just want to encourage us, okay, this, you know, when the difficult, okay, let's just apply, what's the application here? in this moment. As my friend Narayan says, where's the liberation? You've been studying it now for 20 years. Where is it? Show it to me. So I want to I want to look at some of the uh, four great efforts the Buddha talked about. And I want to look at it from a sense of discernment. And I want to look and see whether uh, it makes sense as we read it, because we follow it. We believe, you know, well, the Buddha said it. Okay, so this is what I've got to do. But let's look at it from the depth of our wisdom and see whether it matches what we know to be true or what feels truthful to us if those words match, if they correspond to that feeling of truth, or whether it's like, what? And you start reading this stuff, and hopefully there will be a big what that comes into you in some of this. So let's just, because some of this is just... Okay, so the four great efforts. Uh, just let me give you an overview. Four great efforts that the Buddha talked about. Now, first of all, we don't know, we don't know what he said. <laughs> That's the first thing. Second thing, we don't know who he said that whatever he said to, we don't know who he said it to, because oftentimes his instructions and his teaching were corresponding to the understanding of the person he was speaking. If he spoke to his eight-year-old son, it was very different than speaking to a very realized monk, and he would say different things. So, but we just, we just follow the words without putting them in, into perspective. So these four foundation, these four great efforts, is really, we, we want to uh, cultivate what is wholesome. We want to sustain the wholesome once it's cultivated. I'm giving you the, I'm giving you the overview. We want to eliminate uh, the unwholesome once it has arisen. And we want to make sure that unwholesome states of mind that have not arisen do not arise. There should be a big 
Every one of us should question that. Now, you're st now you have met the Buddha on your terms, with your courage, right? You don't fall in line here as an obedient Buddhist and have some monk who has many, many years of being a monk set, set you a, a course in which you're shaking your head the whole time, what is going on? You listen from your own sense of discernment. So let's just look at these things, because I, th I think they're worth listening to. Cultivating the wholesome and the helpful and the beneficial. Well, first of all, the word cultivation sticks in my throat, because only a person who feels replete diminished in some quality is going to cultivate another quality. And the sense of being a person is the embodiment of some sense of diminishment. That's what keeps us moving as a person as we feel diminished, discontent, something about us is driving ourselves through the present into the future where we can claim the prize of full contentment, full worth, for a full glory, whatever. And so cultivation really reinforces that particular pic depiction of a person, of a sense of me who needs the future in order to be fulfilled. Okay, so strike one. <laughs> that doesn't work. Okay, so let's change the word. How about inclining? Let's, how about inclining towards the wholesome? Now you begin to get, okay, so that makes a little more sense because there are times in our lives when there's so much turbulence going on that unless we incline our mind towards calm, and you can all do it, you can sit and just say, let calm arise, give yourself that intention, and you will feel often that very quality arising. In fact, in the Buddha's instructions in the Anapanasati Sutta, he says, let me... Uh, 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 feel the calm in the in-breath. Let me feel the calm on the exhalation. So he's really encouraging the intention of calm as, as these different sensations arises. Now, it's okay, so that's, that's fair enough. Not that there is anything wrong with the mind states that are occurring, but if the boat is rocking around a lot, I'm not going to be able to see much. And so to invite or incline a quality of mind that stabilizes that boat so that I can begin to see and look around and get to know, that makes sense. So it's not so much cultivation as just inclining towards a quieter sea. Okay, let me just relax in this moment. Let me just release the tension that I feel this moment contains. Let me just stabilize what is here by denying nothing that is here. And then all of a sudden you find your mind really taking a very uh, serene and balanced, poised view. And now you can look out and it's fine. That's a beautiful, and you realize that certain qualities can be very helpful to have when you're trying to engage in an observation, when you're trying to look and see what's there. But at some time, at some point, we have to see what it is that we're trying to get out of to make it into something that's calm. What is it that seems to be so irritating in me? Let me look at that which is such an irritant. Instead of letting me offset that irritant with a calming quality, let me see the irritant for what it is in its completion. And it's a useful task, a skill that each of us can do if we simply, while we're sitting, say, nothing is going to move me. I'm going to see everything that attempts to move me in this moment. Everything that attempts to move consciousness in this moment is going to be seen. You see how quiet you become immediately. And the only place that you can land from that statement is the formless. 
because any form you land on is more of the movement. Now, uh, we also realize that not all of us are up to complete stillness in every moment and that we need some skillful means and discernment sees that. It's not uh, so absolute that it doesn't recognize, okay, so let, let's just bring in some skillful means here so that I can help balance this shaky consciousness out and so that I can have some sense of balance here to get myself stabilized so that I can have some sense of ground under my feet. So skillful means can be very helpful. But this tradition, the tradition we are in, insight tradition, is so full of skillful means that we never find our way to the formless. That's what I mean by one hoof on the ground. So as I talk about skillful means, let us not just claim total reference to those possibilities and forget about <laughs> the absolute formlessness that really satisfies all difficulties. But the precepts are very helpful when we want to uh, encourage more wholesome states of mind. And uh, so that when you're, uh, there's less of a sense of drama, less of a sense of paranoia in us, more of a sense of stability, of integrity. Uh, we're not, uh, uh, cringing with a paranoid idea that we might be discovered. You know, it's like you're just relaxed in the moment because you have nothing to hide. And so that is a tremendous asset to the ability to, to sustain calm. And you begin to see that you, uh, not only is it an asset to sustain calm, but what calm shows you is the need to be integritous. So it, both ends are helped. And then there's metta practice, which establishes a connectedness to uh, a certain uh, uncomfortable relationships and a sense of settledness within that. There's the spirit of generosity or the act of generosity, which establishes a balanced mind and mental harmony and our willingness to give and joy within that as well. Uh, there's uh, forgiveness, self-forgiveness and other forgiveness that can be very helpful. All of these, what we've talked about in the past and we'll talk about again, can be very useful. And there, there can be the absolute resolution not to move in relationship to any state whatsoever. And so one has to be very empty of oneself in order for that state to arise. Now the second uh, of these uh, four noble efforts is to maintain the wholesome once it is developed. And may I say, they're not fragile. It's not like, oh, I've got this beautiful state of calm. Now I just, how do I? I don't want to move too fast because I, I just, how do I maintain it, you know, and I, boy, I've seen some uh, meditators try to maintain their retreat experience after the retreat. You know, I, I don't want to talk to anybody right now. <laughs> okay, and the, I was with one woman who was driving me back to the airport and she was driving 10 miles an hour. <laughs> and I said, you know, speed limit's 50. And I'm not going to get to the airport at 10 miles now. She says, no, I don't want to disturb my mind. I said, well, you're disturbing my mind. <laughs> so I don't like trying to maintain. You know, if, it's, if it's trying to be maintained, it's not worth maintaining. You know, if it slips out of our, it's not. What is it that's, where is this thing called calm? I, I want to call it up. I want it to, if it's not here, it's not worth pursuing, is my, is my sense. Where is their love? Where is their serenity?
and am I willing to question, actively discern anything that seems to obstruct that? Rather than trying to maintain it, let's look at what obstructs it so that it seems as if I don't have access to it. Now you see, now this is, a, this is the empowered position. This isn't the feared position. This isn't the cringing, you know, I have to, you know, my spiritual practice is so fragile. It's not fragile. Come out and growl like a lion. Courage of it. Some hints is that pausing and allowing ourselves time to be able to consider what is interrupting ourselves and where the, the wholesome is being interrupted. Reestablishing a sense of connection. If you establish a sense of connection, wholesomeness will follow that sense of connectedness. If you're willing to look at the emotion that seems to disconnect, what will follow is a sense of connected emotion around that very mind state. If you're even in the most difficult state of mind, like one's loneliness or whatever it is, if you're willing to, to just perceive it fully, the power is, has been dramatically drained from the power that it has over us because its power only is contained in the story that it has for us. And once we're aware of it, the story is diminished considerably. And once the story is diminished, what arises in place of the energy in which that story was invested is the space to be able to see. Maintaining the wholesome. Maintaining. Overcoming the unwholesome states that are present. And overcoming the unwholesome state. That does, it sounds like you're standing at the door with a machete. <laughs> overcoming is self. That's what the self does. It looks away. It seeks its own refuge away from the difficulty. The practice is to move into the difficult. And the heart, I mean, just, just access the, if we just access the heart, We'll know our way. If we line ourselves up so that we're not blaming. See, but what keeps those unwholesome states so tenaciously uh, identified is that we're, we're simply not allowing ourselves to be accountable to them. We're not seeing them at rest. We're seeing them as blame. You have to see something at rest for it to be seen. If you're blaming your anger on someone, you're not seeing it at all. It's not because it's not your fault that you're angry. It's his fault. Why should you take responsibility for it? Why should you even be accountable to it? This is why accountability is so tremendously important because it allows a rest to come to rest with this. And then the guarding against the unwholesome that have not yet arisen. I, I, I was listening to a tape of an Australian monk uh, and he was being asked a question and he, the questioner was saying, you know, if you were out and saw a su beautiful sunrise, uh, what would you do? And he said, I'd turn my back on it. And I said, well, <laughs> <laughs> hang some garlic around my door. Uh, that's nonsense. We're not, we're not, uh, we're not trying to protect ourselves from anything here. We're not anti-feeling pleasure. 
This isn't an anti-pleasure trip. Not at all. Do you know that? Not at all. Pleasure comes. It's beautiful. But to only want pleasure, or to seek pleasure in opposition to, that's where it gets troublesome. But when pleasure comes, it's, oh, sunrise, wow. And then it's gone. Guarding against the unwholesome, like an overbearing vigilance to make sure nothing comes into my mind, and there, that just establishes you as the reference for your mind. That sets your watcher very powerfully in place so that you'll be vigilant to yourself. And that's dualistic nonsense. It's suffering. It's stress. You can feel the stress. A relaxed knowing. Well, yeah, of course you want to know what's coming into your mind, but it doesn't have to be stressful. Whoa. And you realize that some things are beyond your ability to cope with them. Very well. Then distract yourself skillfully so that you don't do that in the moment. And you, so you sort of pick your, your, you know, you know your strengths. That's what discernment knows. It has a beautiful idea, understanding of the potential that you have in that moment as well as what you're meeting and what's coming in. And sometimes it, the best thing to do is to skillfully retreat from it. It's no problem. Only to come back out at a time when I feel more empowered. And sometimes, like, we all go through phases of our practice when just avoiding certain people because how they burden our consciousness. I can't seem to, when I'm with my mother, father, sister, brother, boss, fill in the blank, when I'm with my mother, let us say, I just get lost, you know? And then, then the, perhaps a skillful thing to do is to pass up Thanksgiving. It's just, it's, it's, it's too disturbing, right? And then at a different time, when you're strong enough and you can handle the, your own conditioning in relationship to that person, then they can't, there's no reason to not to uh, rejoin. Knowing yourself, that's what we're talking about, knowing what your capacity here. Not pretending, just being honest and direct with. Very simple. And when we are caught in situations that are not to our advantage, we bring as much observation as we can to it. And that's all that's necessary for us to learn ourselves into the next level of response to that. Sometimes we can't get out of the difficult, nor do we want to. Sometimes we can't get out of the company that's around us. It comes. And then we just take it on. And we just stay as vigilant as we can. We stay as watchful and as aware as we can in that moment to all the different ways our minds get lost. It's okay. Everybody's practice is okay. Okay, I'll we'll sit for a minute or two. So as you sit, you see what, uh, how formless is your sitting? How much dialogue is there in there? Where you're bargaining with some state or emotion.
talking to yourself in the mirror. Not very kind words. That's all there is. That's all that's happening. That's all you'll ever see is your own reflection. And just to really now show up for our practice and let all that drama go. Encourage the next step forward here. But let's be done with the theory of practice and apply the principles. Okay, good, thank you. If there are any uh, questions or comments, I'd be happy to. Yes, the waving hand in the back. Right. Yeah. So okay. Is worth, worth any of that, right? Okay, so the question was about cultivating a state of mind. Am I also saying that anything that isn't here isn't worth pursuing? I mean, before I tried to find something, I'd want to see if it's already here, wouldn't you? Now, you have to be serious, you know, because none of us feel. Uh, that's the, the embodied sense of self. You've got to understand that this, what drives the sense of self is, is inadequacy. It, doesn't, it never feels complete, which it's not because it's an idea. An idea can't really feel too much too complete. But anyway, so it's always driven to discover an experience in which it can rest. Right? So whatever we hear, we think we have to go obtain. That's the way it works. That's the way this particular paradigm keeps us in motion. And it's never ending because you never come to a rest for very long before whatever it is that you've been chasing dissipates and you have to then either chase it again or chase something else that complements it. So when you've got all that chasing behavior down so that it doesn't, you no longer feel uh, the need for the pursuit of different states of mind because those states of mind that you are pursuing at their best are temporary. Then you begin to get more resolved about finding whether that state is present now. And you have to, you have to call it up. You have to call it. It's like you're, you know, there's a big fog bank here and you don't know what, you know, five feet in, you can't see anything. So you say, is calm there? <laughs> but the way you do that is that you get quiet. Let's see if calm arises. Now, do it now. Just try it. And now don't inhibit it. You're inhibited. Oh, I can't do that. There's you don't know, don't know. I don't, just see. Just let's get quiet. Is calm present? Interestingly, the more quiet you become, the more calm is present. Because calm is a quality of stillness. And so then you begin to move this practice in a way that acknowledges sufficiency rather than as the way we've been practicing, which acknowledges the truth of insufficiency. Does that make sense to you? This is a sufficient practice. Finding your sufficiency. 
not healing the wounds of insufficiency. But if we feel, see that, that the, but the, the general storyline that most of us carry is that I am insufficient. Well, we all carry that. That's the way that the story is written. It's still being written. It has to, there's no final chapter to it. And as long as we're alive, there won't be. And the sense of self continually moves itself in relationship to another chapter that I need to have in order to what? Finally rest. That's the way that insufficiency works on our life. And it's not going to stop working because you don't want it to. It's going to stop working because you don't believe any longer in that story. Instead of letting the sense of incompletion See if you can follow this. Take you to the state of completion. Listen carefully. Find the state of completion even within the mind state of being incomplete. So we're not looking for that to leave, but it's no longer being driven. It's no longer being proved true by the story I give it. Once the story is extracted, it's just a sense of incompletion. And it's complete. There's rest. By what I mean by complete is that there's no movement in relationship to it anymore. There's just rest. I hope some of this is finding its way in. Yes, please. Um, one thing I was thinking about as you were uh, giving the talk was just uh, how the renunciation system to um, the whole notion of cultivation and that. Um, I mean, it seems like there's kind of a, a natural sort of tendency toward that that can develop. So the question is around renunciation, where is it play and know this? It means a lot of different things to love. What it does not mean is turning your back on the sunset, okay? But there's a natural movement towards simplicity uh, that is heart-driven, not uh, willfully driven, not as a should, but just kind of a natural, just don't, drama just, it just doesn't, you're not enticed by drama. And so there's a natural, a natural call to ordinariness and to just uh, resting in the ordinary. Uh, and that's a lot of renunciation, is just finding that resting. There's also a renunciation of, of the stories of our mind being perceived as just simply not carrying the truth, not pointing to where they used to seem so determined and so truthful, you know, and as you have experienced story after story, state after mind state, state after mind state, all day long, and been fallen under the empowerment of those states of mind, slowly, 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 for most of us, there is this renunciation in the sense that, uh, of disbelief in that. I ju it just doesn't... Um, it's just not going to invite my energy anymore, investment. Right? And so I think renunciation is one of the more misunderstood qualities, but a tremendously important quality when it's understood in a wise way. Uh, Hi. Hi. <laughs> um, I've noticed that the more um, I'm willing to sit with and see whatever it is that comes up, um, the more I'm able to connect to others because it's like, yeah, this is me, and it, that, it just feels like this is what connects me. Good for you. Good for you. The more she's willing to see what's inside of her and connect with it, the more she's able to connect with other people as well. A lot of things are going on there. 
because as you get more comfortable with all the different ways that you manifest emotionally and all of that, the more you will then have that same degree of compatibility with what you see manifesting and how you interpret that manifestation. Usually, we always, we recoil at our own sense of unworthiness. Where, where it is that we self-dislike, that's what we dislike in others. Right? So that's one of the things that's happening. The other thing that's happening is that you're just becoming comfortable. You don't really care. When, you don't, when you're happy with the way you are, so you're not uh, trying to bring it always up an alternative to being the way you are, then it doesn't really matter what people think of you. You only felt it mattered what people thought of you when it mattered to you what you thought of you. Right? And so then you're always protective of them seeing what you feared to see in yourself. But now that you're relaxed, it's like, <coughs> so what? Right? And that's the avenue towards authenticity, towards relaxation, towards calm, towards connecting. Because often what keeps us from connecting are all the things that we place in between ourselves and that relationship that we don't feel is deserving of us to connect with or another person should be connecting with. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. Well, that's when you know yourself well enough to know that you shouldn't be eating chocolate all the time, right? Or, you see, I mean, if you're an alcoholic, you know not to drink. You know yourself well enough to know that you have no ability to stop yourself from drinking, so you don't drink, right? And that's where you know yourself, and that's, that's knowing yourself. That's not really, it doesn't feel like a, a huge... Uh, sacrifice. It's like, okay, I'm just, no, I can't do this. Or if you gave me a sweet, I don't care, a whole, I could eat the whole pie in one sitting without even looking up. But I know that about myself. I don't have any limits in my ability to limit myself with sweets. Okay? So I take a, I take a, a little bigger <laughs> and then that's it and that's it because I where does it stop you know where does it stop at 300 pounds 500 pounds? where does it stop so I just that's it and there's this kind of just this awareness of one's limitation and just surrendering to that fact, really. It doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like a burden or it doesn't feel like a stressor. It doesn't feel like I'm keeping myself under guard. It's just a fact I know about myself and then that's it. I don't even think about it. When you like when I first started fasting, I couldn't get through a single day of fasting. This was years ago. I'd try to fast one day a week and I'd get to noon. And I get too hungry. I said, well, this is ridiculous. I'm eating. And so finally I said, well, this isn't fasting. I'm gonna, I don't care how hungry I get. I'm not going to eat. And then when the mind knew that I was serious, it shut up. It didn't try to uh, have me compromise that. And then fasting was simple. As long as it knew it could get me to eat the extra piece of pie, it wasn't going to give up. But the no was, was from love. It was the no of love. No, I'm not going to do this. And it wasn't the no of will. 
who's a no of love. This isn't good. This isn't good for me. Right? And so there's the abandonment of unskillfulness, not based upon, uh, you know, the force of my own volition, but just simply the no of love. I care about myself too much to want to eat this. See? Okay. Okay, y'all. Thank you. So next week, a discussion on this topic. Stay with us. Stay w- uh, Well, it's hard. I don't know if it's hard. It's not hard to me. <laughs> it's very, it makes complete sense that this is where the practice would go. So you're going to jump off the train when the practice starts going to the sacred, when that's what we're sitting here to do, is to access the sacred? It doesn't make any sense, does it? So this is how we touch the sacred. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.